listening. This is Better With You, a podcast built on the idea that something is better when shared with others. Each episode, we'll take a look at a media work or works or artists' body of works and talk in depth about it. I'm your host, Gregory, and this is my co-host, Alex. Hello. This episode, we're discussing the period piece samurai films of one of Japan's greatest filmmakers, Akira Kurosawa. So I'm going to do as brief an introduction as I can. It's a little tough. He wrote like a lengthy autobiography. So if you look at the Wikipedia article for this, it's really long and it's really dense. So trying to make a basic introduction was a little difficult. This one might be a little bit longer, but this will serve as an introduction to our topics for the next two episodes because we're doing this one on the samurai films and next week will be his crime dramas. So that'll help a little bit. So next episode might be a little bit shorter, but we'll find out. So just a brief-ish introduction of Akira Kurosawa. Akira Kurosawa was born on March 23rd, 1910, the eighth and youngest member of his family. His father was a member of a samurai family, and his mother was the daughter of a merchant. So if you can't tell already, this was vastly different times from what we're used to. His father was open to Western traditions and valued the educational merit of theater and film, which is quite the rarity at the time. So Kurosawa and his brothers and sisters would have grown up seeing films and theater and sort of having that valued in the home. His older brother, Heigo, was highly influential to Kurosawa's development. And there's a story that he took him to see the aftermath of the great Kanto earthquake of 1923 and actually forbade him from looking away from the human and animal remains. He told him he needed to face his fears head on. Heigo went on to become a narrator for the popular silent films at the time, and Kurosawa moved in with him while he worked to be a painter. Kurosawa exhibited paintings and worked for the left-wing proletarian artist league. He would later disavow himself of them, saying they were putting unfulfilled political ideals directly onto the canvas. Heigo developed Kurosawa's love for film by showing him silent films, theater, and circus acts. Heiko began to lose work as talking pictures became more popular, and in July 1933, he committed suicide. In 1936, Kurosawa was hired as an assistant director for Photochemical Laboratories, PCL, which would later become Toho, thanks to director Kajiro Yamamoto taking a liking to him. He worked for five years as an AD, mostly under Yamamoto, for 17 of his 24 AD credits or under Yamamoto-directed films, and most of them were comedies. <laughs> uh, he soon realized that penning scripts was much more lucrative than being an AD, so he began writing and selling screenplays as well. Sanshiro Sugata, an adaption of the Suneo Tomita novel in Kurosawa's directorial debut, was released on March 25, 1943, and gained critical and commercial success. Interestingly enough, it had to get past the Japanese censors at the time, who cut about 18 minutes from the movie that now are just lost to time, as far as we know. I kind of wanted to jump in here, too, because when I was looking up stuff about Kurosawa, there's a part two to that movie as well, isn't there? That was like commissioned yeah. by the Japanese government. Yeah. And it's like super propaganda. Interesting. <laughs> From what I remember reading. So, yeah, it was some of his films were like commissioned and were actual propaganda films. Like the next film he shot was The Most Beautiful, which was a propaganda film about women in factories during the war. So he did do some stuff with the Japanese government, though it, it sort of seems to me that he also tried to have as much of an artistic vision about it as possible. Hmm. He went on to marry Yoko Yaguchi, the lead actress in The Most Beautiful, despite their many arguments. It stated that she was sort of acted as the representative for the actresses that he sort of put through some method acting style stuff. And they had a lot of arguments and disagreements, but that's sort of how they became close and they ended up marrying and they remained married until she passed away, I think in the eighties. So after the war, Kurosawa found himself inspired by the post-war occupation and democratic ideals. And this is something that would remain in his work for the rest of his career. But funnily enough, his few post-war films also had to pass through the American censor. So he no longer had a Japanese censor going through his films. He had to go through the American censor instead. He was highly prolific in his career, putting out about one movie a year, which was definitely more common at the time than it is now. Stray Dog is considered his first major work and features the debut of actor and longtime collaborator Toshiro Mifune. It seems that once you had made it and improved yourself to Kurosawa, you were essentially a member of his troupe, so to speak. If you read some interviews with some of the actors and crew members that worked on his movies, they sort of talk about being in Kurosawa's group. He used a lot of the same crew and actors. Yeah, and I think Stray Dog might be one that we talk about for the next episode as well. 
Yeah, Rashomon was released in August 1950 to middling reviews in Japan, but while Kurosawa worked on his next film, Rashomon was entered in the Venice Film Festival unbeknownst to him and was awarded the highest prize. This put Kurosawa and Japanese cinema on the world stage. This propelled other Japanese directors into international acclaim, and the international market suddenly took interest in Japanese cinema. This somewhat replaced like Italian cinema, but Americans and other Western audiences suddenly like wanted more Japanese movies to watch. Seven Samurai was released in 1954, and while commercial and critical success at the time, it has only grown in acclaim. It is now regarded by many as one of the greatest Japanese film ever made by film fans, critics, and filmmakers alike. And personally, it's one of my favorites, and I think it's truly a masterpiece. Kurosawa continued to make films and even founded his own studio with Toho as a majority shareholder. And everything was going well until Redbeard, a film that went vastly over budget and turned his actors against him, including a falling out with Toshiro Mifune, who would never star in another one of his films. The movie was still critically loved in Japan and was successful, but it was also at a turning point in Japanese media, where costly film production came to an end, specifically Kurosawa's costly endeavors. They were turning more to television. So then Kurosawa went to Hollywood and had several issues, including getting fired for being mentally unstable. It was a real mess, and Tora Tora Tora, the film he was working on, came out to less than enthusiastic reviews. He then didn't make another film due to financial constraints until Soviet-Russian Moss Film approached him to make the film Derzu Uzala, which was received with critical acclaim. George Lucas, who loved Kurosawa's films and took great inspiration from them for Star Wars, was disturbed by Kurosawa's inability to get funds. He and Francis Ford Coppola went to Fox and leveraged them to finance Kagemusha in the 1980s. I think the film came out in 1985. This beautiful film proved to be an international success. This allowed Fox to fund Ron, Kurosawa's adaptation of Shakespeare's King Lear. It was another international success, but not as big a success in Japan. Kurosawa made three more films in his life, Dreams, based on his own dreams, Rhapsody in August, and Madadayo. None reached the success of his previous works. He continued to write more screenplays that were never made in his lifetime as he suffered an accident that left him bedridden. He spent the last half year of his life watching TV and listening to music. His mind was there, but his body was failing. On September 6, 1998, Kurosawa died of a stroke in Setagaya, Tokyo at the age of 88. So that's sort of a long, not so brief <laughs> version of Kurosawa's lifetime and work. Yeah, that was actually super interesting. I didn't realize that he had worked on Tora Tora Tora, which is a movie that I grew up seeing because it's one of my dad's. It was it was just one of my dad's like VHS tapes that he would always like put on. He really oh, liked really? it. And yeah, I didn't. I just looked it up, and yeah, he's an uncredited writer and director on it, and along with uh, two other. Japanese directors who filmed the Japanese segments. Yeah, it was really unfortunate because at the time, like he basically suffered a mental breakdown mm. and like Fox used that. They like tested him and everything and doctors came back and it's like, yeah, it's these different things. He's stressed, prone to anxiety, stuff like that. And Fox uses an excuse to fire him from the project, <laughs> which is why he would have been uncredited. Kurosawa can have like has a breakdown on Tora 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 and they fire him. Meanwhile, Francis Ford Coppola has like a breakdown while making an <laughs> apocalypse now. And they like still somehow keep him and make that movie. And I think my personal opinion is that movie's a mess. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I love I love the fact that George Lucas and Coppola like came together and were like, no, we want Kurosawa to keep making movies and we're going to like put our money on the line basically to help fund those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah, it's, they were big fans. Yeah, it's so cool that George Lucas could like give back to the director that inspired him so much. Like there's something like very beautiful in an artist sense about that, regardless of what you think of George Lucas as a filmmaker. He was definitely a film nerd, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Alex, other than like Tora Tora Tora, apparently being your experience of Kurosawa when you were young, what what was your experience of his movies more modern day, I guess? Yeah, I guess I didn't realize Kurosawa had been in my life from a younger age. So the first Kurosawa film that I watched was Rashomon in college. I had to write a paper on it and I really, really loved it. And I think that had been his the only one of his films that I had actually seen up until very recently. Mm -hmm. 
you had been trying to get me to watch Seven Samurai for a long time. The runtime, I think, is the main thing that I kept me from watching it, which is fair. Was a mistake because it's a great, it's a great freaking movie. Yeah. So yeah, I had seen Rashomon in college, and then I recently watched High and Low because I had been even more curious about his crime dramas because I've also been kind of in that mode lately of watching classic Hollywood noirs and crime dramas and stuff. And so I was curious kind of what that genre looks like through a different cultural lens. So I watched High and Low and that's how we kind of came up with this idea for this two-parter anyways. And then, yeah, I watched Seven Samurai over the weekend. Yeah, it's freaking great. Great movie. Like I, it's one of those movies where you don't think it could live up to the hype, but it, so clearly does it's engaging it's very emotional it's very heartfelt and it's very funny yeah all of his (laughs) movies have that humor to it it's a great blend of tone like it does it really really well and the fight scenes are really thrilling yeah everything about it i think works so well you're watching it and you have you just have the feeling that you're like this is like a master working on like with all cylinders firing yeah Everything working out great, great acting, great ensemble acting, but then like huge sets and big, like it's essentially like the second half of the movie is like a, you know, hour and a half long fight scenes, one after the other for the most part with like a little bit of like breaks in between. And it's just like the fact that he could make like an hour and a half long fight scene so engaging and also not boring. It's like each time... It's varied enough. You're not like watching, you know, like a Marvel movie as much as I love some Marvel movies, like 30 minutes of action in a Marvel movie feels like way longer than an hour and a half of action in this movie. Yeah. To me, I, it's just really it's really good. <laughs> yeah. Like we we might talk a lot about Seven Samurai in this episode just because like to me, I think that is his ultimate masterwork that I have seen. also think it's the greatest representation of his Samurai movies. So we will talk probably a lot about that because I think it does sort of distill everything that all of his other samurai movies do into one movie. But there's plenty to talk about with other ones. But yeah, Seven Samurai is the first one of his that I watched as well because I had heard, I think it was a Reddit post a long time ago. Someone was like, I watched all 100 of the 100 movies to see before you die. And here are my picks for movies you should watch. And Seven Samurai was up there because Seven Samurai is like in the top 10 of that list which i don't even know who makes that list or what that has to do with anything but that's something that i tell people and they're like oh really when i try to get them to watch the movie which for some reason continues to work even though nobody knows like nobody i talk to is like oh yeah that list but whatever (laughs) so well i think that that list has become more of a thing now when you have like scratch off posters and of like scratch off each movie you've seen type of thing you know that that list is becoming a little bit more well known yeah but but yeah it's like the three hour long runtime might set you off there's like a 15 minute intermission on the disc not to mention like that makes it super easy if you want to split it into two sittings like that does not lessen the experience in my opinion there's an intermission streaming it too yeah on at least on the criterion channel yeah and then the fact that it's in black and white also is a turnoff for some people but kurosawa does amazing work with the camera amazing work with his editing and his composition so it's it's the fact that it's in black and white don't let that deter you because the shots in the film is beautiful regardless and he didn't use color for a really really long time most of japan didn't so with kurosawa i also started with seven samurai and that was the first film of his that i watched and it was actually the first film i watched of like classic japanese film and classic samurai films that i've been I guess, personally studying over the course of the past six years, seven years. And what a place to start. It is, I think, the best samurai movie I've ever seen. I think that holds up. And I think it is the starting place that everyone should go to. Like if you watch one classic Japanese movie, watch Seven Samurai. If you watch one samurai movie, watch Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. There are tons of other good ones that I have seen since then. Yojimbo and Sanjiro. Kagemusha, Throne of Blood, Hidden Fortress, all of those have their own appeal to them and their own beauty. It's not to say that all of his samurai movies are the same, but I do feel that Seven Samurai properly distills everything that's in his other samurai movies into a single film that really makes it a masterpiece. 
one of the things that I really love that plays a role in all of his movies, because he grew up on Western films and literature, often his films were criticized for being too Western, but he sort of melds this democratic ideal with the feudal caste system of Japan. So it's a lot of like, well, yes, there was a ruling class and the samurai like were a higher class than the peasants, but the samurai were truly honorable when they fought for the people and protected the people. So it was like, yes, there were classes, but the classes should have been one, you know, the peasants worked for the higher class, but the higher class protected the peasants. Like that was the honorable way that it should have been, which is a much more like Western and democratic ideal than I think more of the feudal caste system would have been, which obviously like in 1950s Japan would have been somewhat of a radical idea. And I think that that makes it much more accessible for us in the West. And that really perhaps brought Japan more into the Western world and the post-war media landscape as well as he's sort of brave viewpoints on Japan's history and sort of revising that to be more democratic. He's often described as humanitarian. And I think his themes on the role of power in higher class like really does show that. So much of it is like humans are humans, life is worth the same. And Kagemusha really points that out when the lord of one of the states dies. And at the same time, his advisors find this thief that's trying to rob them that looks just like the lord. And they're like, okay, this guy's the lord now, so we don't look any weaker for enemies. And he like really plays into the role. And there's this whole thing of them finding out and him sort of finding a duty and being the Lord. But it's basically to say that, like, well, is the thief's life really worth any less than the Lord's life? And like, especially if they can fill in like that. And I think there's a real beauty to the humanity and the humans in his films. One of the best things that I love about Seven Samurai is that the stories feel fleshed out enough and the characters feel fleshed out enough that the people feel like people. And it feels like people working together. It doesn't feel like samurai and peasants coinciding or like even coming together to fight. It feels like human beings coming together to fight an enemy. And is that a sense that you got that you sort of felt from the movie? Like, do you agree with that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think you do get a little bit of a sense of kind of his humanistic revision of history in Seven Samurai, because I think there's definitely moments where it occurs to you in the 1600s, it's like, I don't know necessarily that this idea would have been expressed by somebody living in that time. So for example, in Seven Samurai, there's a part where one of the samurai is a a young samurai hooks up with a a peasant girl who he's fallen in love with. And the girl's father like freaks out and is like freaking out about, I think he calls her damaged goods which is terrible yeah. but that feels appropriate to the time but there's like a couple other of the other samurai who are like hey i mean they're kids like this happens before big battles you know you can't blame them they're just trying to like have a have like one last night of fun before they potentially die yeah <laughs> and it's like i don't know necessarily that anybody would have been that understanding at the time <laughs> of that it feels like a, a little bit more of a modern moral kind of pushed in there it's in that way that he kind of adds his more humanistic approach to these very traditional figures you know right so i think you i mean i think like his attention to character development and the way his characters are written and kind of the backstory that he imbues them with is very humanistic for example the toshiro mifune character named and i might probably pronouncing this wrong but Kikuchio. Mm-hmm. It's revealed in one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie and probably one of my favorite scenes ever in this monologue that Mifune gives to the camera. He goes off about how the, the caste system and the samurai kind of taking a turn for of piety, like being very pious and viewing themselves as above farmers, not only as their duty as being protectors, but also using their position as samurai to take advantage of farmers and stuff like that. And he espouses about how the samurai have created this situation where these bandits can take advantage of these farmers, these bandits who 
some of them are in samurai armor and then it's like it's revealed i think either i think right after this scene that mifune's character grew up as a farmer and very likely found a samurai's armor and sword and just pushed himself into the upper caste which at the time you wouldn't see as much you wouldn't see people move you don't see people moving caste you don't see people moving up in society and even then he's he's had moderate success with that (laughs) you know what i mean yeah i mean he's very clearly not a samurai when you're watching the movie he's not like any of the other samurai even to the point with i was watching one of the featurettes on the criterion channel and they point out that a samurai has two swords one to fight with and one to kill themselves with to prove their honor to their lord and he he only carries one sword yeah in the movie so it's like very even if you don't know that i think you when you see him you know that he's different yeah and so when that explanation comes in it's like oh he grew up as a farmer and forced his way upwards and out of that is with how his his character is this very rambunctious rough around the edges and kind of wild card he's the wild card of the seven samurai (laughs) essentially at one point he literally like just rushes into the forest and like stalks a couple of the bandits and kills them without telling anybody and they all get mad at him for it and I think the way the way he approaches that character development where you're you're presented with an image of of a person, you're presented with kind of this archetype and there's a great amount of care taken in adding nuance to the character and recontextualizing their actions that feels very humanistic. It feels like there's a lot of purpose taken in making you identify with certain characters. And I think like he's sort of the main character yeah he sort of gets the most arc it's sort of like him and takashi shimura's character kambe shimada who's sort of the leader it's sort of hard to tell he's sort of the main character shimada is sort of the main character it's really an ensemble cast but they they really Mm -hmm. what's interesting about that though is that one of the things i didn't realize when i was reading up about these movies is that the samurai code forbade them from doing like menial labor so in the event that their lord died that they served they either had to go find another lord to serve become a ronin and a sword for hire all of the samurai that we meet in the movie are or just like pillage villages and become bandits they could only make their living by the sword basically so chances are a lot of the bandits are either samurai or like the villages have been pillaged by samurai before and that's why they're so apprehensive about the samurai in the first place and that's why kikuchio calls them out on it they're like don't act so pious you know what the samurai are like you know what they do just don't act like you get to be so high and mighty when you are of the same class you are of the same group that has done this to the peasants and the samurai don't deny that. Right. And I think it's one of the most interesting scenes is the part where Kikuchio, he and the other, other some of the other farmers find samurai armor that was very clearly pillaged from dead bodies of samurai that the farmers have either come across or killed themselves. Yeah. And I think it's a very subtle way to kind of elaborate on the history that this village has had with samurai in addition to the bandits that they are now plagued by. Yeah, but it's interesting, too, from the peasants perspective, it's it's like they were wary to turn towards samurai because they'd had so much trouble with samurai. But now they not only have to rely on Ronin, they have to rely on the most like generous and humble of Ronin. All they can offer is someone to serve room and food. And so all they can get is Ronin that are barely making it or Ronin that operate basically on honor alone. And that's where we get these like great heroes. The first half of the movie in which they're gathering the samurai is kind of the more compelling half to me. Like as much as I enjoy the fighting and stuff, I love meeting all of the characters and I love getting to see them interact together and meet each other. And there's something so much fun and interesting to me and human about it that I really, really appreciate. And there's such a good natured humor to his movies that feel natural. So like 
the good natured human of a group setting. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, and I think I was texting you this while I was watching it, is that that second quarter of the movie, which is because I, I think the movie starts out a little slow and like, yeah, takes a little bit to kind of find the pace that will carry it. Uh, when I mean by the second quarter, it's kind of the moment where like all the samurai are hired and together in the village and they're kind of planning, but they're also just interacting with each other and they're interacting with the farmers. Yeah. And that interaction, because you get, I mean, you get some of the best scenes in the movie, but you also, because you get the, how these two classes are interacting with each other in this unusual situation that neither one of them is really used to yeah and that that i think is one of the beauties of it and i think that first half of the movie like kurosawa painstakingly sets up all of the action for the second half in the first half of the movie like we're aware of the locations of the village we're aware of how many bandits are going to be attacking we're aware of the weapons the samurai and the villagers are going to be using. We're aware of where they're placing them. We know they're training. We get the full rundown of everything and they draw out a map. They draw all the samurai. You can count out in the second half every bandit death. They literally throughout the second half of the movie are crossing off yeah. each bandit that they kill and counting it down. It's such a good way for the audience to keep track of how much progress they're making because they're, 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 some, they're after like something like 20 something bandits or yeah. something like that and shimada is crossing each one out on kind of their planning document <laughs> as as they get reports of how many who have died he crosses them out and it's great to see it really builds up the tension as you get to the climax which is i think incredible as well it builds up that tension really well because you know how little there are left and you know that like oh my god they're so close to making it yeah and that type, like it, it does a really good job. It's like it's such a simple way of doing it, but it's a really good way to allow the audience to follow along with the characters while also building tension in a more unique way. And one of the things that I sort of I watched a video on this was about the consequences in the action. So this is sort of goes back to the humanistic approach is that we see every bandit die. We see them struggle to live. Mm -hmm. We see them crawling in the mud. We see the fight. The lives matter, both of the samurai and the peasants, but also of the bandits. And it gives this more real feeling to the battle and real feeling to the tension because we see all of the bandits go down. And I think that's so interesting compared to like modern action movies where like, oh, it's an innumerable number of enemies or... They're just finding enemies like you have a hard sense of what exactly is happening. Not only do we know exactly what's happening and how many there are, but we also see all of the consequences for the action. We see the death. So we're very aware of the struggle on both sides. And I think that has a really powerful image to it. It makes death matter a little bit more, especially when you do lose the samurai along the way partially because you know them so well at that point, but also because death is really felt throughout the movie. Oh, absolutely. And not in like a gory way. No, like not none at all. Of the death, none of the deaths are exceptionally bloody. They're not really bloody at all. But it's like in the way that sometimes a character hesitates before giving the final blow. Yeah. Or the way a character is dragged by a horse, which... Is also a very Western trope. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought was uh, interesting. And we can get more into that comparison a little bit later. But there, there's just subtle ways in which they make the death matter in the way that you, you see each death and how they're killed, what they've gone through before they've been killed without it being gory or bloody. Yeah. It, it communicates the, the toll that it's taking. Yeah how great are the characters in this movie like how great are the samurai and even the villagers of this oh my movie? god yeah <laughs> like one of my one of my all-time i mean there's so many great scenes with this movie but one of my favorite scenes is one where the farmer manzo who is the father of shino yeah who is the girl we were talking about earlier there's a part where so the bandits have muskets and they start just firing into the like the barrier that they've constructed and it seems like one of them hits Monzo because he falls to the ground 
And then they like get him and they, they drag him out and he's like, go get my daughter. I need to speak to her. Basically, get her. I'm dying. I need to yeah. say one last thing to her before I die. And then the, I think it's Gorbe Katayama looks at him and realizes that it was like a graze. He's like, what the frick are you doing? It's <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you're such a baby. Like, stand up. <laughs> it's it's so and then just some of the little interactions they have. Kanbe and Gorobe. I think it's Gorobe that they know each other from a previous battle. I think so. And it's even interesting where they're like, oh, so you survived that battle. And he's like, yeah, I hid in the, the reeds for like three days to mm-hmm. avoid it. It's like, well, that's that's the samurai. That's the samurai that you're knowing. He's not the strongest. He wasn't out there. He hid for like three days and then survived. And so he lives to fight another day. And here they are. And they all sort of bemoan their situation of, well, this is the situation that we're in, that we're fighting for just room and board. And I think a bowl of rice a day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You've got, he's in a lot of the movies. I don't remember his name and I don't remember the samurai's name. He's the more like comedic one. I think he's the one that actually comes up with the flag for the seven samurai. I don't, I've, I've seen this movie like four times and I never remember their names, unfortunately. It is I hard remember to keep track of. The sort of general, and you don't really need to know them. Just kind of what's mm. nice. Like you recognize them. I, I don't know. There's just so much it's incredible there's so much humanity and so much like just people being people in this movie the samurai getting along and the samurai interactions with the villagers i i can't get over that every time i see it of just like what a natural group sense that is and by doing that kurosawa is he kind of dispels the mythology of samurai right and the kind of mythologizing and idolizing of samurai as presenting them as human with their own motivations and their own desires because there's plenty of samurai that we yeah and their own personalities they're not all the same they all have different reasons for what they're doing and we meet some that want nothing to do with this situation yeah one of the other things too is that the young samurai katsushiro is so Interesting because like he's so young and he sort of idolizes the idea of the samurai. And that's why he's so hell bent on following Shimada is he's so impressed with him from the first time we meet him, which why wouldn't we be? Mm -hmm. That dude was a total badass. But part of the through line of the movie is that he's learning what it means to be a samurai. He falls Mm -hmm. in love and he has that young love. But at the end of the movie, she's moved on. She's planting rice. The cycle of her life can continue of the cycle of the year planting harvesting and selling the crop meanwhile he is finding out the cycle of the samurai's life i didn't die in this fight i live to fight again and the cycle Mm -hmm. continues and it's it's the same way is that we see you serve your master to your death so that they may live on and the only three remaining samurai leave the village as they watch the villagers sing joyfully replanting their rice and they sort of mourn the fact that the villagers are the one who truly won the battle. And then that's the role of the samurai. That's the role of the people that fight. They fight so that their lord can live on. And the lord, in this sense, is the villagers' people that they served. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's such a beautiful scene of them looking at the graves of the samurai that passed on. And you can hear the joyful singing. And you you feel the loss, but also like the heroism in that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a good way of putting it. And so that that Seven Samurai, just go watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> rent it from the library. Or rent it from the library. Like, Can you, do find you, it at your local DVD store or something. Do you get a free trial of Criterion Channel? I think you get seven days free, and then it, I think it's eleven ninety nine or ten ninety nine or something like that. I think that. it's eleven ninety nine, or no, it's ten ninety nine. Sorry, it is a little expensive, but if you can get that seven day free trial, use it to watch Seven Samurai absolutely and you know talking about western influences yojimbo and sanjuro are basically like kurosawa goes oh i'll show you how western i can make my films and so it's only fitting that yojimbo would be remade into the premier spaghetti western a fistful of dollars by sergio leone like that's a shot for shot remake of yojimbo well as is like the magnificent seven yeah of, is a is a remake uh, of seven samurai seven samurai yeah we didn't even get into that but yeah a lot of his movies or at least at least two yes have been directly remade well yeah it's interesting though because it was it was to the point that kurosawa actually sued leon over <laughs> a fistful of dollars and was quoted saying it's a fine film but unfortunately it's my film <laughs> which is fair 
<laughs> because yeah, it's like a shot for shot remake. And Kurosawa was a fan of John Ford Westerns. So Yojin Bo is very much a Western movie. The enemies are like cartoonishly bad. And you have a true hero that is sort of this ineffable samurai. But even then, Yojin Bo in its sequel really shows that Kurosawa believes that wit is the true power of the samurai. It's not his incredible swordplay. No matter how good the samurai might be, it's his intelligence and wit that is the true power that he uses. And so we see that Yojimbo and Sanjiro are like the same character outsmarting the villain and turning them against him. And ultimately, it will come down to his own power. But it's so much planning. But Yojimbo is just Toshiro Mifune's character who calls himself Sanjiro, which means 30 years old and like the Japanese word for mulberry bush, who goes into this town and finds that they are competing mob groups, essentially gambling mob groups trying to take control of this town. And the general public, specifically this sake brewer, is suffering. And even the farmers in the area around, like as he's making his way towards the town, he finds a young farmer that's running off from the farm to go try and make some money gambling and being a part of one of the mob groups. And so he's this really gruff guy, but he tries to pit the two groups against each other. So it's so much a Western of walking into this ghost town and I'm going to take out all the outlaws. Yeah, he like sets up this elaborate kind of trap to basically allow them to destroy themselves. And he, he inevitably sort of fails in it and gets captured. And then it's by his own strength that he gets out. But we see that a lot of it, he is this generous character that doesn't really want to be generous. He's this really gruff guy, but he saves this mother from one of the mobs so she can run off with her husband and kid. The farmer's son that he saw in the beginning, he spares and says, run off, go back home and stuff like that. And I think there's still heart to that movie because as much as it is sort of this more cartoonish, I think there is still a lot of heart to that movie in working for the little guy or trying to protect the people that are sort of caught in the crossfire. And then its sequel, mm-hmm. Sanjuro, is basically like a full comedy, in my opinion. This might be the most recent one that I've seen. I rewatched Hidden Fortress and Yojimbo for this, but Sanjuro might have been the most recent Kurosawa movie that I'd seen. And yeah, that movie's just really funny. And it's it's not really about human versus human. It's sort of just about Sanjuro trying to come up with a plot to save these stupid samurai and he he really there's not really any peasants here so there's not really anyone to sort of it's not super humanitarian you know what i mean where it's like it's not about a class system or anything it's about some stupid samurai that ended up in a bad situation and (laughs) sanjiro offers to help get them out of it and this sort of Mm. elaborate scheme that sort of goes awry and everything happens on two sides of a garden wall it's it's really, really funny. And there's some very modern comedy in it, some of which was improvised by the characters themselves, which is really great. So those are really those are his most Western films. But all of his films were criticized for being too Western because he really focuses on the individual instead of the group. So there's a lot of group in it, but there's very individualistic characters, especially in Yojimbo and Sanjuro, but also in Hidden Fortress, where the female princess and the general are like super individualistic. And then the peasants that are in this movie that we really follow through everything. They're sort of the main characters are this funny kind of tragic characters. They're kind of hopelessly stupid and bumbling, but we also see them as these down to earth, like very admirable characters because they really just sort of make it through. But this is a journey adventure film that went on to heavily inspire Star Wars. Mm -hmm. There's a really strong feeling of class difference in this movie. But the peasants bumbling around and the general and princess are really stern and different sounding. And they're sort of trying to use the peasants for their own gain. But that doesn't mean that they aren't incredibly valued. So many times they're like, well, why are these peasants still around? Why are we using these peasants? But the princess also learns to see the beauty and ugliness of people in it and gains a more grounded view of the world through her travels. 
And it's also about the generosity of human beings. The peasants learn this for each other, but also like the general Rokurata, generosity is repaid by the enemy when he eventually defects and saves them from getting killed. So it, it, it's sort of about that human generosity. And I think that one's really interesting. It's interesting. I think that when you mentioned the character's generosity in The Hidden Fortress, I think how generosity is performed is it seems like a common thread yeah in some of kurosawa's films even in which we'll get to the next episode high and low the way generosity is performed and not performed he uses that to show you a, a lot about a character it's kind of a person's generosity is and whether or not they take the opportunity to be generous or how they show their own generosity is something that he uses to tell you a lot about the character. Yeah. And it can be how that character's grown throughout the movie, but it could also be how this character views their own position in society above others or beneath others. Yeah, and that's used really similarly here. And generosity is sort of the through line of the movie Mm -hmm. in general, because you find the peasants are very stingy and, and spiteful of each other. But then they come to be more generous as the upper class was generous to them and that the generosity of the enemy saved their butts. And in Seven Samurai, it's technically part of the samurai code for them to defend this this village. Mm -hmm. But at the point at which they are in history, that level of generosity is not as common. Right. It's these seven samurai show a great deal of generosity towards these people that in this particular point in time they do not have to yeah they can be like any of the other samurai that they talk to and try to recruit and just be like it's not for me i don't work for rice like i'm not interested in charity that's kind of the view that a lot of the samurai have in seven samurai it's the generosity and hearkening back to their traditional role that endears those samurai to the audience it allows us to sympathize with them and tells us everything we need to know about them that they're ultimately good people because yeah they don't have to do this but they're still risking their lives for these people that they do not know yeah it's been a while since i've seen rashman i can't necessarily tie that into rashman i think rashman's much more interested in honor and what people will do to protect their own honor. But I'd have to rewatch to see if that through line is there. But I can, the way you're describing these other movies, like, I kind of get the sense that that is a thing that Kurosawa uses in his character development. Right. And I did, I wanted to talk a little bit about Throne of Blood as well. So Throne of Blood is an effective adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. It's adapted to feudal Japan and Japanese visuals. So... The story is like a little less human than Shakespeare's, but it's a tragedy all the same because the characters are a little more, they're a little less like sympathetic. They are a little more of the archetypes, which fits really into Japanese no theater, which Kurosawa utilized a lot in this film and in a lot of his films. The exaggerated movements that you see from different characters is very much like a no theater technique. So he essentially adapted European theater to Japanese traditional theater. And the makeup is a little more representative of no theater. But not only does he adapt the theater, but the visuals of the movie are very similar to like a traditional Sumie painting where there's a lot of dark positive space and bright white negative space. So Sumie is ink painting so you would take an ink brush and it's about doing just the amount of brush strokes you need to create a positive space of the landscape but also leave negative space to fill in the rest it's a very traditional japanese art form and you see that in his movies like the castle that they built for throne of blood is like black the movie's in black and white but the castle is really, really dark. And it's on these like volcanic sands, which is really, really dark. And so it's very like black and white visuals. Unlike Shakespeare's Macbeth, where orders are stored by a just political authority, it's not the case in Kurosawa's. 
where the character of Macbeth in Kurosawa's film takes the lead and is slaughtered and implies that the cycle of violence of feudal Japan will only continue. It's a little more pessimistic given the time period that it's set in. These are all things that I sort of read up about, but I think it's a bit like representative of some of Kurosawa's influences because I think his films do tend to be like very Shakespearean to me where you always show the peasants and they often express the theme of the film or represent the theme of the film. The peasants are also the comedic relief of the film. And then the nature of the humor, the sort of epic nature of the films, but very human nature of the themes and the characters is very Shakespearean. It's not surprising that he adapted Macbeth in A Throne of Blood and King Lear into Ron. Ron, which I have unfortunately never seen, but would love to because I really enjoyed King Lear when I read that. His influences are clear on that. And I thought it was very interesting how much Throne of Blood represents sort of his visual style, but a l- drawn a little bit further. I mean, I do think it's interesting how often Kurosawa has adapted Shakespeare. Because like you said, Throne of Blood is an adaptation of Macbeth and Ron is an adaptation of King Lear. And then another one of his movies, which I don't know if we'll talk about next episode or not, but The Bad Sleep Well is an adaptation of Hamlet. Right. And I've not seen The Bad Sleep Well, nor have I read Hamlet. So I I can't really speak on (laughs) that. You've read much more Shakespeare than I have. I took a glass. But uh, yeah. And I do think it's interesting. He is a very Western Japanese filmmaker. He takes direct influence from the most Western, most like the most classic Western plays. (laughs) But he really makes them into like, it's not just, oh, I transplanted it. It's like, no, he adapts these to like Japanese culture and history, which is what's so impressive about it. He does he does what kind of like a literary translator does, which is if there are idioms in the original language that are specific to that language and that cannot be literally translated, you find a facsimile of replacement that that gets the same point across, but is specific to the culture that you're translating to. He, he does that with these. It seems like that he he finds what it is in Japanese culture that he can compare to these things and it's like viewing Shakespeare through Japanese culture rather than just taking Shakespeare and putting it in Japanese culture. Yeah. But I do think that those those influences like you've said have they are there. They yeah. They're there enough to be especially noticeable, I think, by a Japanese audience, which you've marked that he wasn't always celebrated by Japanese audiences as much as he necessarily was by international, i.e. Western audiences. Yeah. The last film of his that I've seen that we haven't talked about is Kagemusha. Now, Kagemusha I'm a little conflicted about because I watched this movie once. It's another really long one. And from what I remember, there are tons and tons of just long, time-consuming shots of just people moving and like war scenes. It's like people marching, people riding horses through hillsides. I mean, it looks great, but I remember being like a little slow and a little boring. But when I was reading back about this, it was the one that I was like, maybe I should go back and rewatch that one. Like I said earlier, Kagemusha was one of Kurosawa's final films. It was done in the 80s. It was only made possible by the financial support of Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. And unlike his earlier like prolific career where he would quickly write a script and then begin work on filming he spent years thinking about and planning this film he went back to his youthful pursuit of painting to build images for the film so since he couldn't make the film into real life yet he didn't have the funding or anything so he spent years making impressionist color paintings to visualize the film and this was long before funding was ever secured for it and you can find these paintings i was looking at them in the booklet that's included on the Criterion Collection Kagemusha Blu-ray. And they're very well translated to the movie, like the movie shot beautifully in color. And you see these sort of long shots of people moving and like people fighting. And that's the sort of like these like waves of people is what you get the sense of when you're looking at his paintings. And that painterly effect in the bright colors is like really felt in the movie. 
Like I was really impressed with that when I was looking at the the paintings. And like story-wise, it has that interesting story of like, does the high-class lord really matter more than a peasant? Aren't they just one and the same? Can't they fulfill each other's roles? And in the end, the peasant dies trying to do a service to the lord. He gets ousted because they find out that he's not actually the real thing. He gets ousted and so he's a peasant again. And the last thing he does is try to fight in the losing battle against a rival lord. He tries to fight and gives his life fighting in this war for the Lord that he was for some amount of time. And it's like, is that the learning of duty? Is it the appreciation for the courage of the Lord, understanding the role of each other? Or is it simply just getting lost in the act for that character? And I think it is this interesting story that I don't think I quite appreciated when I first watched it. Now I'm like, well, maybe I should go back and watch it for the visuals alone. Yeah, that's one that has been on my list ever since I've seen still images of it because it look I mean, so much of it looks painted. And I think a lot of the backgrounds were. Yeah, which wouldn't obviously wouldn't be surprising. But yeah, that and Ron, the color imagery of both of those movies looks just like incredible. And so I'm very interested to go watch those movies. They seem like probably two of the kind of more interesting movies you could just like pop on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything else you, you sort of want to say about his samurai movies, Alex? That's that's everything that I have about these movies, all of the movies of his that I've seen. I really can't sing their praises enough. I really can't tell you like how much I love the genre of samurai movies. And I hope that's come through on this, but I really do love these and I love sort of finding where Japanese cinema like began really hit the world at large. Like it had one of the longest cinematic histories Mm -hmm. at the time. And a lot of people didn't realize that until Kurosawa came around. And I haven't seen any of the silent films, but it's so amazing to me to see what I still think is, is the masterpieces of Japanese cinema. And I was wondering, is there is there anything else you'd like to say about it? Not directly, I guess. Yeah, this was. I guess I've always been kind of hesitant about samurai movies. That's I mean, that seems weird. I've seen the only samurai movies I'd seen before Seven Samurai were Rashomon, and I had seen one of the I don't know thirteen Zatoichi movies. I haven't seen any of those, but yeah, I for the life of me cannot remember which one it was. I mean, that's fair. But, I really liked it. It was long, but I did like I did like that. It's kind of those are oftentimes I feel like I think more of comedic. So I I think my hesitance towards watching Seven Samurai came from kind of a hesitance towards samurai movies. It's not something that's like overtly interested in me. The aesthetic of feudal Japan and the aesthetic of samurai has been, I think, oftentimes overused and used as kind of window dressing in Western media. Even in recent video games, which you could argue some of them do them, do it better than others. Uh, yeah. But oftentimes, if it's a Western developer making something that uses samurai imagery, it feels more just kind of a like window dressing or like, um, look how cool this is. Yeah, I like a Kurosawa mode in a video game. Um, yeah. <laughs> but as cool as that can be, it's it's what does that mean but actually digging into seven samurai made me want to go through and just watch the rest of these i have more of a fervent desire to watch i really i think yojimbo is probably next for me followed by probably kagemusha and ron because a lot of people consider ron to be his like the culmination i mean it is one of his was it his last movie or one of his last movies? It was not his last. So he had three movies, I think, after Ron. But I think it was his last great one. Yeah. Is what it's considered. And yeah, a lot of people consider it to be one of his masterworks. It seems like that Seven Samurai and Ikuru are considered like his. Ikuru is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't nailed down <laughs> the playlist for next week besides High and Low. I think I really want to see Stray Dog. Especially since it was one of his, it was like his first major work or one of his first major works that was like wholly his own. Yeah. It wasn't like a government. Yeah. And that's also the premiere for Toshiro Mifune. Right. Who before then had literally just been like, he was, he fought in the war. 
and one of his war buddies was like, hey, I'm working for this company. You should come. He was trying to get like a crew member job. And then he ended up auditioning as an actor. And Kurosawa really liked him. He's so great. Kurosawa really, He's so fantastic. Yeah. But he he's so like not the stereotypical like Japanese actor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's hard not to like love him on the screen. Oh, yeah. And uh, reading reading words from him in the Seven Samurai booklet with the Criterion Collection, it's it's like part of what you see on screen is very much him. Because mm-hmm. Kurosawa sort of just let him do whatever a lot of times. He was like, well, do what you think is right. And then he would sort of help direct him from there. But ultimately, it was it was Mifune who sort of made some of the basic decisions about the characters. I wonder whose I wonder whose idea it was for him to be running half ass naked through the forest. He talks about that, too. <laughs> he said people like kids would come up to me and like, we watch you die butt up in the mud. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, that was me. Yeah, the whole sequence of him when he decides to just kind of like rush into the forest and kind of like spy on the bandits where he's got samurai armor on his torso that just is completely like butt naked at the bottom. And yeah, where he's like stalking different bandits and he he kills one of them and takes his musket and then goes and finds another scout and sits next to him and pretends to be that guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then like like hands him the the, the musket. It's like hey, yeah, like look at look at this gun. And then the guy like is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like does a double take and then realizes it's not his friend and then Mifune kills him. That whole sequence was was incredible. That's one of it's, my favorite, my my favorite sequences in the whole movie. It's great. And Toshiro Mifune is in a ton of films, even outside Kurosawa's work. Mm-hmm. He's the star of the Samurai trilogy, which is based on the book Musashi Miyamoto that my dad and I watched recently. That's really good. Yeah, I he's great. He is a great actor. And I think it's really cool, as lame as the Hollywood like Walk of Fame is with all the stars on it. I think it's really cool that he has one. Yeah, that to me is really cool. As silly as those things are. I wonder if there's any press photos of, of him there or if they awarded it posthumously or. Yeah, or what I just I get a really good feeling about this. I I, I wish I could communicate better how much I think those films are worth watching. And it was so interesting to learn that, like, no, the reason why we know a lot of the tropes of that is because they were popular in the West, too. Like that, that had never really occurred to me. Not something I'd realized. It's just, no, there was a huge demand for Japanese cinema back in the 50s and 60s. And I I think that's wildly cool. Oh, yeah. Because I think that helped Japan a lot, bring it into sort of the modern age and sort of, heal some of the wartime wounds as well yeah it kind of acted as uh, especially kurosawa being kind of western leaning in his writing and directing it kind of built a bridge between western audiences and japanese culture between i guess japanese audiences and western audiences yeah there's kind of a nice way for these two audiences to connect in an era post-war that is when goodwill towards either side is not necessarily at its highest. <laughs> yeah. And Kurosawa's focus on the human and the humanitarian aspect, I think was good for both. Mm-hmm. And so that that's what really impresses me looking at the historical context of this and finding out a little bit more, but to sort of wrap this up and sort of going off that, like with the modern Japanese media landscape, as it is with anime, video games, manga, it's really easy to forget its rich film history. And to me, no other director is a better place to start than Akira Kurosawa. In his time, the samurai and their way of Bushido was highly propagandized for war. So the samurai would have been a very controversial figure post-war because even now conservative Japanese ideals are trying to sort of propagandize the history of the samurai. And I think Kurosawa's films really take the samurai back for the people after the war. He posits that samurai were not some superhuman, high honor war machines. They were people that fought for their honor, the honor of their master and the protection of the people. Kagemusha points out that anyone can fulfill even the highest role of the Lord. Their lives were no greater than that of the common thief. It's just the role that they were playing. 
All of his films, but Yojimbo and Sanjuro especially, pose the theme that wit is stronger than the sword. And while the samurai were self-sacrificing, it was only ever for those in need. Sword of Blood shows us the reality of the cycle of violence in that time. Samurai were cutthroat and did not always operate on honor. Hidden Fortress state that war is hell and good leadership sees and values their subjects. In many of his films, he asks us the question, what made them heroes? What made them human? And Seven Samurai presents us with the ideal. A highly skilled and intelligent warrior who is willing to humble himself to serve those most in need. One who is unafraid to sacrifice his life in the fight to protect others. There are despicable samurai who raid the villages to live. There are some who ignore the plight of the people, but there are truly honorable samurai willing to risk it all for next to nothing. That was the cycle of their lives. Die honorably or live to fight another day. And Kurosawa shows us that the samurai could only be heroes because they were human. And because they saw each other as human and worthwhile. So now I, I think it's a good chance to wrap this up with some recommendations. So this week I'm going to go first, which is a rarity. My recommendation for this week is something that I've just been sort of binge watching recently. It was on my fiance's recommendation. She really wanted me to watch Gravity Falls. Um, oh, yeah. Which is a it's a Disney kids cartoon, but it really has something to enjoy for everyone. It's really fun. The characters are really fun and interesting. The voice acting is great. It's about Dipper and Mabel Pines traveling to Gravity Falls, Oregon for the summer and staying with their great uncle or grunkle Stan, who runs the Mystery Shack and all of the strange occurrences that they come across. But Alex Hirsch has stated that a lot of it is based on and some of the characters are based on his experiences of growing up and the summer vacations that he had. And additionally, it starts out like very episodic of just this episode. This it's this thing. It's a very standard kids cartoon. But there is like a through story that really presents itself by the end of the first season and sort of weaves its way through the second season. I'm about halfway through the second season at this point, but it's super enjoyable and it it's, gets better and better as you watch it. Characters are really fun in the stories and there's there's some great, really funny laugh out loud moments. So I would I would recommend that because I've been enjoying it a lot recently. Nice. Yeah, I love I love Gravity Falls. I've not methodically sat down and watched like gone through it, but I have caught it on Disney Channel, Disney XD every now and then when I decide to go on YouTube TV, which is not often. But similarly, I guess I wasn't sure what to recommend this week. But going off of yours is I discovered this show actually by watching Disney XD and just letting Gravity Falls run into the next show. And it ended up becoming one of my wife and I's like favorite cartoon shows, and that's Star versus the Forces of Evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Star, in comparison to Gravity Falls, is going to feel like a little bit more of a kid's show, but it matures really well into a serialized story closer to its end. But that one's about a young princess from the land of Muni who basically gets sent away to earth because she's been a bit of a problem child, <laughs> but then she has her magic wand and can do like magic spells. And so like for kind of the first season, it kind of it spends a lot of time on earth and it's about her and her relationship with her best friend, Marco, who is a human. And then as it shifts, it spends a lot more time in Muni as they jump back and forth on different adventures and stuff like that. And that's a show that I really love and could can go back and rewatch really quite often. Yeah, it's just a fun time. Don't let the Disney XD nature of it or the kind of aesthetic of the show turn you off as it being too kid friendly. I guess it's it's for all audiences. It's really good. Jenny Slate voices a disembodied unicorn head Ooh. that is basically jenny slate's character from parks and rec yeah. <laughs> and you can either find that annoying or incredible and we found it incredible <laughs> so <laughs> if that concept of, of it sounds incredible then i feel like it's probably a show for you but yeah i guess that'll that would be my my recommendation awesome i think that'll do it for this episode if you have enjoyed this Please recommend it to a friend to know, like, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. <laughs> smash that, smash the bell, smash the bell. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I felt like I should add something there and just nothing was coming. But <laughs> yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at at better with you too. That's twitter.com at, at better with you. 
too. As though you needed the twitter.com part. And you can email us at betterwithyoupod at gmail.com if you'd like. I don't know what we're going to do with that, but we will read it. <laughs> if we ever get fan mail, maybe we'll do a fan mail. Maybe we'll do a episode. fan mail, as though that'll ever happen. And that's our show for this week. Look forward to the next episode in which we will talk about the crime dramas and more modern films of Akira Kurosawa's films. Filmography. Filmography. <laughs> Got there. Got there. Thank you so much. Hope you've enjoyed it uh, as much as we did. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>